made it through the retreat. Still here. And it's my uh, pleasure to get to speak to you on this last night about some reflections on what we have experienced and so far, and also a bit about how to continue our practice in the world. In a lot of ways, it's my feeling that tomorrow when we enter back into the marketplace, back into the world, is when the uh, hard work really begins. Being on retreat is hard work. The silence and renunciation and being with our own judgmental minds, uncomfortable bodies. Probably not even so skillful to compare this kind of work to that kind of worldly, daily life work. But for sure, all we're doing here in retreat is preparing ourselves for daily life. That this is the boot camp. This is the laboratory in so many ways where we experiment with how can I be more present? How can I be more kind, more compassionate? And so we've had uh, over a week, eight days, nine days, together in this wonderful, rarefied container. The pseudo-monastery, the temporary protective environment to support each one of us in turning inward, and awakening. There's been many tears shed, much uh, grief experienced as some of us have uncovered some of the layers of sorrow and pain. There's been much laughter much joy experienced. Uh, as was said, the full catastrophe of life right here in the retreat. This uh, clearly being the microcosm of uh, the mirror of our whole life. Everything we experience at work and in our relationships and we experience right here in our own mind as we pay attention. The levels of joy, the levels of sorrow, the many attachments and preferences and judgments, and the ability to let go, 
to respond rather than react. All of it right here on this retreat. You've received so many wise teachings over these days, beginning with Jack's beautiful explanation of understanding, understanding the Buddha nature that is within each one of us. Remember that teaching, reflect on that teaching, always recall your true nature that is beyond the confused mind or the pained heart, that is beyond this physical form, the one who knows, as Jack put it. And we had Wes's uh, beautiful, deep, and humorous explanation of the hindrances, and the truly impersonal nature of how difficult it is to be human. And how we are hindered by the natural, instinctual craving, natural, instinctual aversion, the sleepiness, the restlessness, and the doubting mind. The hindrances will never go away. <laughs> Our only hope is to make friends with them. I'm sure you've seen that in your retreat, in your practice over the years. They keep coming back. Even to the fully enlightened Buddha, Mara, who is the personification of the hindrances, continues to return. One of the very important things I feel passionate about is that we need to change our expectation. Most of us need to change our expectation and break free from the delusion that meditation is going to be a lobotomy. That somehow if we meditate, if we're good enough, if we're, that we're not going to have a mind anymore. If we have a mind, that mind will experience doubt. If we have a mind, that, that if we have a body, this body is going to experience restlessness and sleepiness. There's going to be craving, there's going to be aversion. Mindfulness and compassion are our only hope. Responding with awareness. Responding with mercy and forgiveness. Just a shift in perspective sometimes is all it takes as Carol so wisely guided us and pointed out. 
breaking free from the delusions. We've been asleep. We've had our eyes closed. We've been mistaken about who and what we are and what's going on here in this world. We've been misguided and deluded. And it's totally safe. I loved so much to hear that piece from Carol. It's totally safe to awaken because it's already true. It's not creating anything. It's not changing anything. It's already true. It's just finally seeing the truth for ourselves and coming into harmony with the constant change in this world and the impersonal and often unpleasant nature of existence. A simple shift in how we see it. Martina reminded us about the deep importance of loving kindness and the practical application of not just a formal training of the mind on the meditation cushion, but in the airport, in the train station, at work, on the freeway. An attitude of breaking our selfish, self-centered attitude and thinking and just beginning to wish that kind of the same happiness for others. May all beings be at ease with the image of the ideal mother, as a mother would protect us, protecting each other in that way. She pointed to, and I'd like to also encourage, especially as we start preparing for the world, this Tibetan trick of a practice of a shift in perspective that says uh, all beings have been your mother in a past life. We've been around this wheel so many times that we've all been related. And at one time or another, we've all been kind and generous and loving to each other. And so to meet each other with that kind of patience and that kind of Appreciation and that kind of wishing. May you be at ease. Another uh, way that I've heard to do that, and, and I encourage this uh, throughout your time here and as you leave tomorrow, to imagine that everyone that you come into contact with is enlightened, except for you. <laughs> that they are all Buddhas in their different forms of drag dressed up in their different, sometimes distressing disguises. And this Buddha is here to teach me more about forgiveness and compassion. And this Buddha here to teach me more about patience, tolerance. To play with that, it's just a trick, it's just a technique. It's not true, they're not. They're totally asleep, (laughs) completely covered in ignorance. They're not Buddhas. (laughs) But what a great way for us to be more Buddha-like. For us to treat each other with more 
wise and compassionate attention. I skipped Trudy's talk, didn't I? What did Trudy talk about? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Mindfulness. <laughs> of course I forgot that one. I wasn't paying attention. Of course, that's uh, the majority of our game here. The foundation of the whole practice, of every factor of the Eightfold Path, of this whole game. You have to be present to win, to play, to participate. I have more and more come to see uh, my own life and human nature as uh, having very little free will without mindfulness. That we're so deeply programmed towards clinging and towards aversion. That if we're not mindful, we're going to continue our same habitual reactive pattern and call it choice, but it's slavery but it's addiction. Mindfulness is the foundation of freedom. And of course, you all know that. You've been practicing it, some of you, for longer than I've been alive. <laughs> some of you are new to this path. how he guided us in happiness. Somebody came to me in the interview after Howie's talk on happiness uh, with a, such a huge insight into how easy it is to use our practice as Howie was talking about uh, those first couple levels of happiness, how to just enjoy life more. How we can use our practice just to be, and the, the sila, the container, just to enjoy the pleasure that life brings more and, and to, to settle for that temporary, impermanent pleasure of life. He said, he finally got it. He said, uh, I never thought this would happen, but uh, I've been converted. I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> That I got that there's a happiness, a, a contentment, a, an awakening, well beyond any sense pleasure. Well beyond a beautiful sunset or a pleasant meal or a sensual experience. That there's a freedom of being available to each one of us. That is happiness within both pleasure and pain. That is freedom and liberation, the highest happiness. 
beyond pleasure. And last night, Jack uh, encouraged us in this path of the bodhisattva. You're all bodhisattvas already, like it or not. Originally, the Buddha in the suttas refers to himself. He says, when I was still a lowly, unenlightened bodhisattva. (laughs) Originally, to me, this term, it feels like all of us that are seeking wisdom is the bodhisattva's path. So clearly, part of seeking wisdom is practicing compassion and is practicing an engaged compassion with this world, dedicating some portion or perhaps all of our life's energy to creating positive change. Not the unrealistic savior complex, but the simple willingness to work for justice in this world filled with so much injustice. Willingness to work for positive change in the direction towards more equality, less oppression, more freedom, less confusion, more love, less hatred. The couple of pieces that I have to add, did I miss anything? Was that really an overview? Did I miss anybody? For the most part. Oh, thanks. A couple of pieces that I have to add that in my practice, so, so important. And we've been living in community, 150, 60 people for the last over a week. In order to sustain this practice, in order to live in harmony with these truths that you're discovering, that you're practicing, that you're living. Seems necessary to me. The Buddha was quite insistent on the importance of taking refuge in Sangha, in community as we go home to our different places of residence. to have at least a weekly reminder this world is so asleep really we are in samsara we are in a world of deep confusion it is so important to keep company of Otherwise, spiritual aspirants. So, so important. And one of the main uh, factors in my life that supports the continuation of practice is gathering on a regular basis. I think that community 
actually holds a lot of different levels for us of practice. It's not the, um, as you've experienced, I'm sure, it's not always pleasant. Sometimes I, I say wise friendships, but not always wise, right? Some really annoying people <laughs> in these communities. And of course, right, these are communities of healing. So some very injured people show up. And the injured people, the annoying, the difficult characters in our communities are just as important as the wise healed for us, right? It's the real litmus test. It's the real we really see how we're doing spiritually when we're with our families, right? That's when we know how well this practice has worked. <laughs> and community always takes on some level of a family dynamic. There's never a community that's always harmonious, just like none of our families. Always harmonious. So I encourage you, uh, if possible, to commit to connecting with other people on a regular basis, weekly if possible. If there's not a sangha in your area, create one. Start your own. Invite your friends to come meditate with you on Sunday mornings or whenever fits. That's all it takes. Kalyana Mita is a term, spiritual friendship. And just this gathering of saying, I need the support. You need the support. Let's do it together. Most of us are very fortunate. We have teachers and communities and places to practice, but not all of us. In support of our practice, uh, even though Howie spoke a bit about it, I want to say a little bit more and encourage the deep, deep importance of ethical conduct, behavior, what we call sila. That it is uh, what supports the cultivation of wisdom, a commitment to nonviolence, and it's not so easy in this violent world, a commitment to cherishing life, to protecting life, not just a practice that we do here on retreat, but a practice of nonviolence and non-harming that we can take into our life. Of course, it's impossible as you've seen walking around here, as mindful as possible and still stepping on ants. And the difference is intentional and unintentional. But as far as our volitional intentional actions, a commitment to non-harming both internally and externally. 
more kindness towards yourself as part of a commitment to sila. My own practice has necessitated years and years of daily forgiveness practice. So important to learn to love ourselves again. And that often we have to meet that uh, place of resentment, of self-hatred, of low self-esteem, of low self-worth, with so much mercy, with so much compassion and forgiveness on a daily basis. We as a teaching team have pointed over and over to your true nature, to the human potential, to the Buddha nature within each one of us. But the truth seems to be that it's buried, that it's obscured, that that Buddha nature isn't so available to most of us. But each moment of metta, each phrase of forgiveness, and each experience of mindfulness is an excavation, is an uncovering. Some would say is a beginning to melt the armoring of the heart. Part of our commitment in the first precept to nonviolence is also a commitment to forgiveness and reconciliation with ourselves and each other in this world. Part of our commitment to honesty and not stealing is a commitment to giving, is a commitment to generosity, with our time, with our energy, this bodhisattva ethic. In order to uncover what is to be uncovered, in order to do what is to be done, generosity is a must to counteract this very natural, selfish, survival-based instinct that most of us, uh, all of us, are programmed in. That's our animal nature, to think about ourselves all of the time. Do you notice that all week? <laughs> Generosity. As a daily practice, the Buddha said, if we knew the importance of generosity, we wouldn't let a single meal go by. Not a single meal without sharing some of it with those in need. Not a hypothetical suggestion in this world where tens of thousands of children starve to death on a daily basis. Not a hypothetical suggestion, a practical encouragement to give, to share, to feed each other.
here on retreat, we're protected from our selves and each other through the commitment to celibacy. But as we go back into the world, of course, uh, I imagine that very few, if any, of us are practicing celibacy. And sexuality, a natural, pleasurable form of part of life. But also in our, um, in, you know, what seems to be true is that we've all suffered perhaps more than anything else around intimacy and sexuality and attachment. And the Buddha said if there was another power in the human experience as strong as this sex drive power, which includes intimacy, which includes attachment. And he said nobody would get enlightened. If, there, if hatred was as strong as the clinging to sense pleasures, to sexuality, the drive for procreation, and the ways that we suffer around those drives when they're out of balance and not met skillfully, enlightenment would be impossible pointing towards how strong and how much wisdom is needed in relating to our sexuality, to our partners, to ourselves. Some would say that uh, attachment and love are hand in hand. Seems like that sometimes to me too. But I've also had more and more experiences, and I know that you have and or will, of the difference between clinging, you know, when we're holding on, clinging, and just being connected. That in true intimacy and love, there's connection, and this extra step of clinging is an extra step. And that what we really seek is to just be connected to each other, in contact, close, intimate, there, without the holding on, without the controlling, without the clinging. And that this is part of our practice to protect ourselves and to protect each other. The last level of, of these sort of precepts for Buddhists, for practitioners, is around drugs and alcohol. For the most part, everyone kind of chooses to interpret this however they like, finding the loopholes, <laughs> myself included. Seems pretty clear that Originally, the Buddha was saying, if you want to be awake, if that's your goal, good idea not to put anything into your body that puts you to sleep, which is what drugs and alcohol do, and it's why they're so fun. Knocks you out a little bit, takes the edge off. But if you truly are committed to awakening, good idea to have that renunciation, 
to say, I'll not take the edge off even. I'll be with life on life's terms, reality, as it is without the help of modern chemistry, except for when medically needed. And maybe the most practical thing about that precept and that encouragement as we go back into this world where a glass of wine with dinner is pretty normal is that we're more likely to mindlessly kill or be harmful or resentful. We're more likely to take something that's not offered. We're more likely to be unskillful with our sexuality or our speech when we're intoxicated or high in some way. We're more likely to be unskillful when we are unmindful. And so the biggest part of that is around being mindful. So community being so important and ethical behavior necessary. It's said that uh, traditionally in, that we're doing it backwards here in the West is what I'm told. Traditionally, in the Asian countries, first you learn about generosity, kindness, forgiveness, uh, ethical behavior. Then you learn about meditation. We've done this uh, Western American experiment of, let's teach everybody meditation first. Maybe they'll get the ethical behavior stuff somewhere down the road. Hard, if not impossible, to make spiritual progress. As someone said, if we are still lying and stealing. And the subtle levels of what it means to be honest. And what it means to not take that which is not offered. Lastly, perhaps I'd like to say something about daily practice. It's a question that comes up always at this point. Maybe you talked about it earlier in the breaking of silence. We'll probably talk about it a little bit more tomorrow. Having that group to go to, the Sangha, can be very, very supportive of that. But it seems necessary for most of us to schedule it. To say, you know, this is the part of my day. And this is the time carved out for it. To sit. To do the formal practice. For some people, first thing in the morning is best. For others, after work in the evening. We each have to find that place for ourselves, that time. Some like to create a sacred space within our homes where we sit, do our formal mind-heart training. Others are happy on the couch. Some have a separate room for it. Others happy on the floor in the living room. 
but important to schedule it before you check the email, perhaps. Before television, before dinner, before the day gets away and it's time for bed again. And oops, I forgot to sit. But of course, any moment, somebody was saying in one of the small groups earlier, any moment that that oops, I forgot to sit comes up is a moment of mindfulness and an opportunity to sit or stand, or walk, or lie down mindfully to bring attention just as we do here when the attention wanders. Oh, I'm present again. I just remembered that I've been forgetting. One of my favorite quotes, and I had it printed out for years and years because I, I beat myself up a lot about not doing my daily practice and favorite quotes, and it's attributed to the Buddha. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but it said something like, uh, and I got it from my father. It said, it doesn't matter how long you have forgotten, only how soon you remember. So that we don't turn our practice into another way to beat ourselves up, but what, what matters is that moment of remembering, is that presence. Oh, right now, mindfulness. Metta, now. Not, I'm a jerk because I didn't do it yesterday. Right now. I've begun um, in my teaching and in my um, practice in, in Los Angeles, we've opened a center. And for the last few years, I've begun uh, leading year-long courses. Through Spirit Rock, they have things, the Dedicated Practitioners Program. I've been doing these kind of things. And I encourage, and I don't think you actually need, you can guide yourself through something like this. But what I've been doing is, I've been uh, encouraging people and, and kind of taking myself through it as well as saying, like, let's dedicate this whole year to forgiveness. If you know, if you've had an experience on this retreat and it's just really clear what your work is now, you saw the resistance to metta and now you know, oh, metta, I've got to really work on that. Or you saw the attachment and you know, oh, letting go, mindfulness, more real work on vipassana and, and non-clinging. I've been doing this thing and it seems so useful to say this whole year I'm going to focus on studying the four foundations of mindfulness and practicing strictly in a graduated way on a daily basis mindful non-clinging or forgiveness or metta or compassion, or generosity, whatever it is. And laying out the whole year, sometimes I've fallen into trap, and I, I know a lot of students, that where there's this sort of like, um, you're going to, there's always a different Dharma talk, and you're not quite guided, and a kind of a longing for more direction. You can give yourself that direction. 
You know what you need better than anybody else. And you can just commit in that sort of internal vow. This whole year until I come back to Yucca next year, I am going to practice metta on a daily basis for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half hour. Lastly, many of you know this really, really well. Take the long view with your spiritual practice. Not you're going to wake up tomorrow. Not you're going to try this stuff out for three months or six months or three years or six years. But the long, this is a life's path. And I say many of you know this because I imagine there's some people that have been coming to this retreat for 30 years now. I think it was already said, I'm not sure, but that at some point the Dalai Lama was asked about how long it takes. Something like that. And he said, uh, don't worry about how long it takes. Check in with your progress every decade. It's a lifetime's work and really practical uh, advice, I think. We don't want to meddle with it too much. We don't want to just commit. If it resonates as your path, as what's true for you, keep practicing even when the doubt gets stronger than the faith. And in a decade, look back and say, am I suffering less? Am I happier? Am I more well-adjusted? Am I kinder, more generous? Am I creating less suffering for my friends and family, for myself? And then in two decades, in three decades, in however long we make it in this body, take the long view, the gradual awakening, A whole lifetime of moment-to-moment uncovering of our true nature. As a bodhisattva on the path to liberation, with a commitment to helping all others who we come into contact with along the way. To the best of our capacity, our ability. These are my thoughts about uh, our experience here and some of my encouragement and support for you. It's been a pleasure sitting with you all week and really uh, a joy uh, and an honor, as you maybe can imagine, for me to get to teach with my teachers who I've been studying with for um, about 20 years now, some level or another. So... uh, Thank you. I'll just sit for a moment.
for the benefit of all beings everywhere.